Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. Today, we're talking to Hallelujah the Hills frontman and the author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, Ryan Walsh. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. and It's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk to Ryan Walsh about his excellent new book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Hello. Welcome. Hey. Um, so, A Secret History of 1960, I didn't realize that it was a, a secret history, but as it turns out, I, I read this book, and the uh, recording, of, or the writing and imagining of Astral Weeks is kind of embedded into this history of 1968, particularly around Boston. Tell us about it. Uh, well, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't be anyone's first thought to how you tell the story of Boston in the late 60s, but it's, it, you know, it's obviously started with the album, with that original obsession of mine, and then that Boston Magazine article. And then when, you know, with working with Penguin, when we stumbled upon the idea of this kind of history of a time and place with a focus on the album, and then suddenly that secret word was in the title. Yeah, but, <laughs> and, uh, but, but I said, I was like, I think I can make that true. And I worked hard to, to make it live up to that. You know? well, you're a Boston native, and I've lived here for a considerable amount of time. And I have to say that so much of what's in the book was unknown to me before this. I mean, I heard vagaries about the Boston Tea Party, um, mainly because it became a production company called Tea Party Concerts, I think, later. Right, yes. Um, but there's all these, you know, there's... All the all the sort of hallmarks of, of what people think of as San Francisco in 1967 are here in Boston. Right. Communal living, cults. I mean, yeah, you know, sort of the underground newspaper. I mean, I, I had it written out as uh, the occult communes, LSD, uh, civil rights movement, birth of the live music venue in Boston, public television, Robert Lowell, the mafia, <laughs> Lou Reed, Ram Dass, and Dr. Andrew Weil as the narc. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were certain people that it's just shocking that they're in this book, like uh, like Robert Lowell, for instance, or um, uh, the widow of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's like it's so many, so many strange uh, paths. At least now. in a funny in a, in a funny aside, I actually uh, put down Lincoln and the Bardo to to read this. So I was actually accosted by Mary Todd Lincoln twice. In, uh, in the, <laughs> She'll in, get you. Yeah, well, she she was secretly roaming around the live music venues in 1968. <laughs> but it doesn't. It, there is a there is a um, you know sort of a homegrown guru of sorts that that sort of casts a shadow through this entire book and. His name, of all things, is Mel Lyman. How a guy called Mel becomes a guru is, is kind of mysterious. But what um, you know, tell us a little about the uh, you know the sort of uh, Fort Hill uh, you know uh, sure. collective and commune. Well, that was one of the first stories I 
came upon when I was researching just the time and the place, um, you know, where I had heard something about the Tea Party. I had never heard of Avatar or their community or the commune up there. And very quickly realized they still own the houses and some people were still around. And then, you know, I found that the Globe was obsessed with them in the late 60s as, like, what are these young people doing living together? This is so unusual. So it's like catnip for middle-aged journalists, you know. And one of the earliest articles, just one of the, you know, one of the quotes from the community member was, you know, once we really get to know each other, we're going to make the most beautiful music the world has ever known. And then the kind of intense statements got weirder or grander from there. I think somebody says that their company's going to provide power for They were going to be the only company left yes, in the world. <laughs> yes, United Illuminating is the company they built. So, um, and they were led by a, you know, skinny harmonica banjo player named Mel Lyman, who said he was God. And he crashed the stage after Dylan went electric. And he was also, like Van, pursuing some kind of spirituality through music. So I was like, um, I can't not write all about this. This is so fascinating to me. And, um, you know, when the story starts, Lyman's kind of famous here and Morrison is unknown. And that kind of flips over the decades. So it really just suggested a long arc story to me. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating. This, this is, I mean, when you say that this still exists, this literally still exists. The, the uh, um, commune, the community, yeah, the community. I mean, they they have a construction company. They um, they have a, they have a property across uh, the country, various locales, and um, you know that's who I bought my complete set of Avatar newspapers from. They they kind of made it work. I mean, if if you're you know, and so on uh, certainly as I say, you know, in the book, on some level. Um, they're, the fact that they're still together is a is a weird success story. And, but I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, you know this is coexisting or uh, you know uh, coinciding with a lot of the famous uh, LSD experimentation that's going on with Timothy Leary and um, right. uh, Albert Al- who yeah, became Ram Dass. Ram Dass. Yep. And um, it, it's sort of Mel. Um, Mel Lyman, who's the uh, the sort of guy who was embedded in the folk scene, right. the live music scene right. with the uh, jug band and yep. and everybody else. Um, you know, he he came, he sort of became to this uh, area what L. Ron Hubbard, I guess, was a little bit in in L. A. or or is that well, a I mean, far-fetched? massively different scales, right? You know, but. Um, um, they seem still to be devoted to him, though. I mean, there's still pictures of him throughout the. There's some. There's pictures, and I, you know, I, I. First of all, they were nice enough to talk to me and give me their time because you know they haven't talked to a journalist in a long time. But I would say, you know, ask things like, "Is there anything Lyman said that you, would, you know, like to distance yourself from or disavow?" And you know, I would get something like, you know. Uh, that's, that that question is far too broad for us to provide a reasonable answer, you know. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you know, I guess like your book, we're starting on the outskirts and moving in towards Astral Weeks, which is the you know the right. story that um, you know, and, and I like the way the I would say the the story is kind of braided in to the story of Boston and the counterculture. Uh, your book, in a in a really positive way, reminded me um, a lot of a, a book called Season of the Witch. 
that was written about San Francisco. Uh, it was written about um, 1967, 68 in San Francisco, and then the 20 years that, that oh, came really? after. And a lot of the stuff about was about uh, Jim Jones and, and Harvey Milk and, and all these various stories that were sort of woven. It didn't have um, the one sort of uh, unifying theme which you have here, which is the creation of Astral Weeks. Right. So, um, you know, you're really, to, you know, when, like I said, we're talking here about a little bit about the history of, of Boston in 1968, but tell us more about Van Morrison's place in sure. 1968's Cambridge Boston music scene. Well, it, it doesn't, on paper, it doesn't make sense. It, and um, that's the reason I got so interested in it because. I became really emotionally attached to the album when I was like 21, 22. It meant so much to me. So then reading that back vinyl sleeve where it mentions all the New England locales, at first I was like, it doesn't, this makes so little sense that those must be places in Ireland as well. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I was... <laughs> Frequently the names are the same. Yes, because you see a lot of that in New England. And then to realize it wasn't, I was like, well... And then to say, learn he was here right before he made the album was another whoa. And then I just kept saying whoa <laughs> a couple times a year as I learned a little tidbit every year. And then come, you know, 2014, after I had some articles published, I pitched the idea of really diving, digging into it to Boston Magazine and was given the green light. And, you know, that's when I started feeling the courage to cold call someone like Wassel the gangster who was in charge of Van. Um, so, you know, the reason I found out, the reason I discovered was very strange. Van was on the run from mobbed-up record people, and someone threw him a lifeline, and he moved to Cambridge. And he was here for like eight months with his new wife, Janet Planet, and a lot uh, happened in those eight months. So, Is that the same Janet Planet that was sort of notorious West Coast... Um was she kind of a... Um, no, no, I, I know what you're talking about, and I can't pull that actual name. But Janet was... Um, that was Janet Plastercaster. Yes, suddenly, yeah, that's right. No, um, Janet was pretty young when they met when she met Van on the West Coast, and she was like, you know, a classic California girl. I think she was modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, um, definitely uh, on some level, like, innocent, mm-hmm. okay. as opposed to... So that was a legitimate... That was a legit... <laughs> well, she says, she has this great quote that... They locked eyes, and it was alchemical whammo. Yeah, I mean, you know? well, I mean, certainly, um, you know, given the man's demeanor, um, you know, these songs that are on Astral Weeks are certainly very romantic and beautiful. Yeah. Given everything, every detail of his personality in this book and other features right. I've read, um, are that he's a very obstreperous, you know, difficult human being. Right. It's just it's one of endless um, contradictions in the yeah. book. You know, I think, well, I think a lot of times people create stuff the, the way they wish their life was or the way, you know, they hope things would work out. So, Or it's that sensitivity that makes them such a hard shell. Yeah, uh, precisely. So for such a beautiful, um, perhaps soft, you might describe it, album, to come out of this chaotic maelstrom, Makes sense. I mean, it, it's still uh, surprising, but it makes a certain kind of sense to but, me after all this. So the evolution of his career, and I, you know, I had to go back, and, and this, you know, book obviously helped me with the chronology that we're talking about. Astral Weeks, uh, a secret history of 1968. Um, you know, I knew it was them, which was his, you know, sort of rock garage yep. rock band from Belfast. Uh, I knew. 
um, Brown Eyed Girl was a hit. Yep. And then Astral Weeks, and then I didn't realize that Moondance, the album after that, was the one that's loaded with every radio hit yeah. that you could possibly imagine. And there really is no, and, and part and parcel with the sort of intimacy of Astral Weeks is that the record company didn't think it was a winner right. and didn't have a single. So there's never been a really a radio hit that says, you know, that no. reflects back to Astral Weeks. The whole album itself is an album. It, it, it sounds like one song to mm-hmm. a lot of people. And you know, um, it's interesting. I, I, you know, the the book's titled Astro Weeks, which leads everyone to focus on that naturally, of course. But you know, when you break it down, he's working on Moon Dance songs just as much as he's working on Astro Weeks. They're all kind of coming together. Well, that's what I learned from your right. book is you know, that Moon Dance was bumped off of Astro Weeks because it didn't fit. Louis Marenstein, the producer, told me that song was ready to go. Tom, the Boston bass player, confirms it that he wrote the bass line. And that, um, weirdly enough, Lewis, a producer, this is unheard of, wanted to make a piece of art. (laughs) Yeah, didn't want to hit. Wanted, you know, he was in charge of song selection, order, arrangement. You know, he, he he, he gets a lot of my credit, a lot of credit in the book, and rightly so, I believe. Um, uh, but yeah, he was making decisions. If anyone was trying to get rich... I can't see it in the decision-making. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it was a very strange set of circumstances other than, you know, Warner Brothers successfully bumping off the mob run or the mob inflected, you know, sort of infested right. bang records. Well, this, just to catch the readers up, if they uh, listeners, if they haven't read it, um, Joe Smith from Warner Brothers, who famously... Chelsea signed, Native. Chelsea Native. He was a, one of the first DJs to play rock and roll around here. He ends up as a Warner Brothers exec. He signs Grateful Dead, for instance... And um, he is trying to figure out how to get Van out of this kind of mobbed-up contract and eventually walks up uh, a couple flights of stairs at a warehouse in New York City and drops a burlap sack of 20000 cash in front of some scary-looking dudes. And that's literally how Van is signed to Warner Brothers, which is... This kid's is how the record industry operated for <laughs> yeah. 40 years. But, he, but something that, that clear of a... It's like a scene out of a movie. You know, you hear about sketchy business, but that that story he tells of how Van got signed is just, it's beyond. And the fact that he know. did it himself. Yeah. <laughs> he did it himself. He didn't go up. And I said, Joe, did you ever hear from those guys again? And he said, no, they weren't in the record industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I do, like I said, going back to the Van Morrison piece and then mm-hmm. we get back into... Um, the sort of secret history of 1968 piece, but um, you know, when so when they made Astral Weeks, he Van Morrison, if I'm not mistaken, after you know reading this through, had worked with these Boston musicians, um, Thomas bass player and John Payne, who was a you know your typical Harvard dropout uh, jazz flautist. Um, <laughs> he uh, and Robert Lowell's second cousin. Right. Um, he, he sort of took these musicians down uh, to record. And Merenstein had a different plan. Right. And really, um, as I said when we were discussing a little bit before, it, it seems like a little bit of the, or a, a great deal of the production on After Weeks happened to him, not with him. To, him to Van. Van yeah. 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 I mean, he was painfully shy, especially around these pro producers and jazz musicians. And, jazz. you know, he, he had, so when he's in Boston, he calls his band the Van Morrison Controversy. It's the only time he uses that name. There's kind of three lineups in Boston. 
of, of that band. The first one sounds a lot like Brown Eyed Girl. Second one sounds pretty electric and wild um, because of the players in it. And then after that dream that he has where there's no more electric instruments in the world, then he stumbles upon this acoustic trio, which sounds a lot like Astro Weeks. Um, uh, but uh, he fought to have these Boston musicians be on the album, but Lewis had the, had a plan, and they got paid to kind of watch the album right get along. made, which is yeah. almost crueler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a perfect Boston story to me. I know we're known as like a sports dynasty now, but that harkens back to the underdog Boston that I grew up with. Pre-2001. Just constantly eating shit and being in second place. And so these, you know, Tom and John were put on the couch and um, at night they said they played gigs with Van. Mm -hmm. So they were still as live. These were, I mean, one, obviously, Harvard, but uh, they're Berkeley College. You know, these are sound musicians. These are very strong musicians. Yeah. But they were basically uh, replaced in the studio with uh, the preeminent jazz players of the time. So, I mean, yep. you know, they were basically replaced by their idols. There's no... Tom literally was yeah. replaced by his <laughs> idol. He saw J- Richard Davis walk in and it just broke his heart. So, um, but, you know, uh, as I say in the book, John um, is stubborn and bold enough to fight his way onto the album, which I, I just love that moment, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's it, you're very taken with it and it happens, you know, it's very close to the end. The, one of the threads that runs through this whole book um, is the sort of birth of rock and roll in Boston. And basically there's a handful of bands that are, are you know, being marketed by MGM, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, yep. as the Boston Sound. Right. Boston Sound does, doesn't exist, but some marketing guys decide that they're going to start advertising the Boston Sound. With that, there are a couple, there's sort of a ragtag team that puts together this nightclub called the Boston Tea Party. Yes. Which is now, which is actually, believe it or not, a friend of mine's old apartment. Oh, yeah. Um, is he on the floor where he's, the... He's on the floor where the windows Okay, were, yeah, yeah. was. Yeah. Um, but uh, he... Um, so the Boston Tea Party is created, and there's a lot of funny material in here that you'll have to read about um, dealing with, with uh, Boston local Boston government about getting that made. But um, one of the things that I really didn't know, I knew there was some touch points with the Velvet Underground in um, Boston, obviously Doug Ewell being a Boston guy that was hired by them to replace um, John Cale when right. he left. Right. But I didn't realize that the Velvet Underground had, had really forged itself so much as a live act up here. They were here constantly. And in those three years, I think they played three New York shows as opposed to 40 here. Yeah. Those three were private events. You couldn't just walk up the street. And no, with the amazing thing is no one knows exactly what that strategy was all about. You know, they had fired Warhol and Sesnick, who is notoriously sketchy in every Velvet Underground bio you read was in charge calling the shots. And I found that Sesnick pretended to own the Tea Party at one point, and that was a lie. You know, there was, so I was trying to, without talking to Sesnick, he's still alive, but it, it, kind of unreachable. Um, without talking to him, it's kind of hard to piece together what the hell the strategy was. But, yeah, the pe- people confused the Velvet Underground as a Boston band during those years, and kind of rightly so. I wondered, you know, to a degree, if maybe there was like a pay-to-play thing in New York that they were avoiding, or whether they were just getting paid more to play in Boston. Well, yeah, I mean, the Tea Party was paying well, and there were great crowds showing up, and also maybe, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, maybe this crowd around here appreciated them more because it was like, wow, a new, cool New York bands here. Yeah. In fact, the, one of the managers of the Tea Party told me that they starved New York so badly that eventually New York fans started to come to Boston to see them here. And he's like, you could always tell because we Boston crowds were dressed kind of slubby, sweatpants, casual. And then these people in silks and furs would walk in and he would point and go, those, those, those people came from New York. Those New York people. <laughs> well, one, one super fan they had early on who haunted them at the uh, Boston Tea Party and became sort of their friend slash, I don't know, bat boy? Yeah, um, uh, gopher or uh, <laughs> mascot, any of these words. 16-year-old kid. Jonathan yeah. Richmond. Yeah. Jonathan um, discovered the Velvet Underground and then met them. Well, he met Lou Reed in Harvard Square first, which is a story he didn't tell after Lou died, I believe. Um, and then just, he just kept hanging around, and they literally taught him how to play guitar. He loved the band. He sometimes drove them around in his dad's car. <laughs> Which, I mean... That's a great visual. I, I just sometimes, if I get stressed, I'll just imagine a young Jonathan Richmond driving the Velvet Underground That's around Boston. Shop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Jonathan Richmond um, was nice enough to do a little bit of interviewing with me. He doesn't email or do phone interviews. We did snail mail, nice. uh, which was fun. And uh, sometimes he would think of an answer after he had sealed the envelope so there'd be a reply written on the back of the envelope. Like, oh, I forgot. Yes. I remember one more thing about seeing Van that summer. So yeah. one of the tea parties there, so there was a, sort of a, it's a transitional period for Boston, actually for a lot of the music world, um, where it's kind of, you know, Boston, Cambridge was sort of famous for its folk scene. Mm-hmm. And that became, that went from being the vanguard to really being sort of a thing of the past very quickly. It kind of became very dated very fast. Yeah. One of the folk clubs that you concentrated on was called the Catacombs, or where Van Morrison played a number of times. And there is this recording that right. is, a, is a thread that runs through the center of the book where I'll let you tell the story, but... Sure. Just to start out, the Catacomb seems to be a weird club in that it was kind of jazz, folk, and maybe a little rock, but mostly jazz. But anyways, um, one of the, when I was researching uh, the story originally, you know, one of the things you stumble upon is that Peter Wolf, the future Jay Giles frontman, one night in late August with that Van Morrison controversy trio that's acoustic, recorded a set. Um, and this is these are the sets that where they were really cooking and doing the Astro Weeks material in the sound that you're going to hear on the album when they cut it the following month. So um, no one's ever heard these recordings. So, you know, early in the book, I spend this interesting evening with Peter Wolf. He shows me the tapes. I said, would you ever let me hear these? He says, if we digitize them, yes. And then he never talked to me again. <laughs> so a lot of the book is me trying to find other ways to hear those tapes or other proof of what Van Morrison controversy sounded like. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't like to spoil it too much, but there's a satisfying ending. Yeah, well, I think I like one of the, I mean, the, 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 you know, you, have, you sort of utilize this device, and I, I can't really put a fine point on what it's called, but you are very present in the writing of this book. Your, your stories sort right. of are interwoven as the as the sort of the present tense that then is you know sent into flashback by interactions and interviews with people so it's very cool we get to find out sort of some of the labor that went into going into the book and, and finding out the story and some of the detective work that you did 
Yeah, and you know we were real careful about that. I, I think a little of that goes a long way. <laughs> but because because this all started with you know kind of me getting my heart broken and that album meaning so much to me, it just sort of made sense that um, the readers would experience the quest. The quest as I kind of went through it, and um, I was real nervous about if people would send a, point that out as something they didn't like, but. People really seem to enjoy I really, that. Thanks, I man. Was fantastic. I, I appreciate that. And um, uh, you know, it meant a lot. The whole the whole thing meant a lot to me. So um, to take readers through the adventure again, it, it means a lot. You know. Now you interviewed. Uh, I don't even want to try and quantify, but you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Probably a couple, couple hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a lot of people. Yeah. What did the Van Morrison camp, uh, what was their oh. response or what has been their response or is there a response or is he as well as he seems? Uh, we couldn't get anywhere close to him. I mean, I tried every avenue I could think of. I figure. Including a ill-advised social media campaign where I just had people... Talk to Ryan. Yeah, talk, I was like, just tell the official Van social accounts... This guy has talked to every living person who worked on Astro Weeks. He should talk to him. People did that. I think we just annoyed some social media manager. But, um, well, it's interesting. We're doing this interview today because he was on the BBC this morning. Really? Yes. <laughs> and he, uh, he, uh, the headline of the story of the interview is, uh, Van Morrison takes aim at fake news. And he talks all about how media uh, just makes things out of thin air. It's hard to not, <laughs> I mean... I it could be responding to a lifelong hatred of journalism, but perhaps maybe a little of that is something about my book. I don't know. But he also talks about Astro Weeks in the interview, too. And he talks about, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a young kid, and it, I didn't know I'd have to answer for it the rest of my life. I mean, it's classic Van. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's mad about I, I think every one, angle of success. One of the, yeah, one of the things that, that seemed very illustrative of his personality was the fact that you know he sort of caved... A number of years, ten years ago, and did this whether a one-off oh, or right. a series of concerts Didn't at two nights. Yeah, at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, I mean I know uh, uh, from secondhand. I know people that went, um, and they said it's. They said it was terrible. Yeah, you know it was like a, it was miserable, and he was miserable doing yeah. it. So I don't know. You know, I mean it's it's a strange thing to be celebrated for something and to to really push it away as, mm-hmm. as ferociously as he does. What I mean. You know, you've you've obviously studied it a lot more closely. Like, what is the? Um, it, I mean, do you feel like there is some abiding love for this record with him, or do you feel like he's been burdened by it? Or, I mean, if you were to, he described it as a burden this morning. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, but I think he also I described think... this morning as a burden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's it must come as a surprise to that people won't put this record away. You know, it's the one that kind of happens accidentally. He's not in charge of it. He's one of a big team that includes everyone from his wife, Janet Planet, to Lewis Merenstein, kind of all working together and to kind of stumble into this perfect record. So, um, you know, um, I can see how that would be frustrating. I mean, I don't mind sharing credit. <laughs> like, like, I'll credit my editor, Ed Park, with with all the, the credit in the world. I mean... For instance, for working on this book, but uh, Morrison, um, I, I don't know. He doesn't seem to be. 
It seems to, it seems, like he says, it's a burden. He doesn't want to answer for it. Um, Joy, you know, Joy seems to be elusive for Van Morrison. Right. You know, he, to this morning in the interview, he talked about how Lewis, the producer, was, you know, kind of strong-arming the whole thing. And uh, so, yeah, like 10 years ago, he kind of tried to reclaim it as his own with this live reproduction of it. And, and you read the book in the epilogue, I kind of take everything into the future, and that's... Um, what happens with bringing original players back and mm-hmm. what what happens in rehearsals is very, um, it's a very strange epilogue. You know? it, it is. And then it's funny, though, when I think of in the sort of annals of rock, you know, and albums, you know, this this album coming along sort of at the, at the you know, burgeoning, uh, at, the, at the beginning of, of the album as an art form as opposed to, you know, I was watching the... Um, the Searcher, the new Elvis doc on oh, yeah. uh, HBO, and yeah. you realize that you know he was kept out of sort of modernity by his manager, just demanding that he put singles and singles and singles out and never make a great album. Right. That's um, a, a long aside to say that you know there are certain albums when you look back. I mean, Kings Village Green or the, even the Stones' Exile on Main Street, uh, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, not understood in their time, um, sort of. Uh, then, um, you know, sort of forever, um, you know, dubbed as, as gr- you know, great and, and yeah. then remembered. But every single one of those artists, you know, embraces those albums now. Right, that is the and, difference, yeah. And, you know, this is, like, the difference here is that, you know, he, he it was shit on when it came out, so you yeah. think he might want to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, he you think he might be a little bit, um, uh, you know, satisfied with the right. ulti- with its ultimate standing in right. the world. Right, and how much joy it's brought people. And, yeah. Uh, you know, when I, I was a, I was producer Louis Marantin's last interview, he died a few months after I talked to him. And, you know, we were sitting uh, on a bench in uh, Manhattan, and he was just, uh, he was just like looking off to the distance, and he was saying, you know, Van's a beautiful poet, should have love in his heart. I don't understand where all this anger comes from. And he talked about how him and his partner swayed after all of it was said and done. They never knew if all the beauty was worth what pain they went through. You know, Lewis kind of starts producing Moon Dance and is, is fired as band kind of gets his confidence together and starts calling the shots. So, Who ultimately produced Moon Dance? Uh, I, I, I we'd have to look at the credits, but I, I, but it's kind of no, that's fine. I, Van, maybe Lewis's credit is executive producer, but of the recordings that actually end up on it, I don't think he had much to do with it. But he started the project. Um, Shelly Yakis, okay, uh, I'm not sure he, he might be credited as an engineer on that. I'm not sure, but he's the son of the two Yakis brothers who ran Ace Recording Studio. Back in Boston, which a lot of the book takes place in, so oh, that's a, that's wild. So I mean, it just uh, uh, wrapping up, and we'll go, uh, you know, in absolute reverse order. Is there, <laughs> did, I, did you do a lot of research on? I mean, it's not included here. This is very much of a period, but did you do a lot of research on Van the child, Van the the you know the sort of. Uh, what made him into who he was as an artist uh, through, you know, going way back. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Clinton Halen's bio is, of man is excellent, and that that does a good job, I think, of talking about the childhood aspects that I was interested in for this book, which is namely kind of the visions and the leaving the body 
things that he said he experienced as a kid. So, um, you know, it's a whole life, and this isn't a biography. So I did, in those early years and in his later years, um, I was mostly researching things related to the album or the themes of the album, like, you know, the supernatural and the occult stuff. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was... That was kind of like my guiding star. That's amazing. Yeah. And we had rules, you know, for, you know, every story could, any story in the book could drift into other years and other cities, but it had to have this strong anchor point in 68 in Boston. Yeah, it really, it is one of the stars of the show, if not the, the star of the show. It's the really, city? Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's really, it's a very interesting. And and like I said, if you're a, a rock and roll, uh, you know, book and documentary fanatic and addict like I am uh, this is one of my favorite books I've read about um, in any sort of era of rock music it's, oh, that's it's so elucidating very nice. and so so far from what I knew or what I thought I knew about this subject so I appreciate wow. it so much thank that's you. so cool thank yeah, you thanks so much for coming by right? hey, thanks for talking to me I All love right. it thank you I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.